Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Nile and Nine podcast. In myself, Niall and Andrea Cleary here. How are you, Andrea Cleary? I'm good, Niall Byrne. How are you? Quickest intro I've done ever, probably. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're excited today, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, welcome along to the Nile and Nine podcast. Um, this week is a a bit of a deep dive. Um, we're digging a hole. We're digging our own hole. We're digging your own hole with the Chemical Brothers. We're going to be talking Everyone about. gets a hole. Everyone gets a hole. You get a hole. The Chemical Brothers get a hole. <laughs> Everyone gets their hole um, to dig. Uh, it is a Chemical <laughs> Brothers. So yeah, I just thought it'd be nice to, there is recently being a 25th anniversary version of this album released, um, Dig Your Own Hole, but the Chemical Brothers originally released in 1997. And I thought it'd be nice to just, you know, focus on one particular album for this podcast. Um, uh, you know, summary vibes. It's not as uh, warm as it was the last few weeks. So thankfully we are so pretty we are warm. Free. It's still warm enough. Um, I'm hoping feeling... that it stays warm for the weekend because we're both going to be at a festival yeah. this weekend. So. Well, it is festival season, so we're going to be out on a little story, yeah. uh, both of us this weekend. Myself, My first time going. Yeah, great. And you'll know when you get there, um, well, not only will you love the layout and all the how nice and small it is and how easy it is to find your tent and all those kind of things. Mm. Well, what is great is that everything finishes at Sunday. It's like six o'clock and then you go home. Yeah. Like, yes. I didn't really know. No other festival just, does that. Before I decided to go, I didn't know that um, that it wasn't also a Sunday night. And you kind of realize you're getting on a bit when you're like, oh, finishing early on a Sunday. I get to be home on Sunday. So that is yeah. very exciting. I'm very excited. For it, that. Is and it's, it is lovely. It's very, it means very small actually, as well. So. Yeah, it means there's an actual crescendo to the, to the festival, you know, like there's one mm. single 
ending to something and, and a get together that everyone experiences, which is a really lovely thing. And I think they were, they were tired about taking that away this year, but decided not to, mm. to because it just makes more sense to keep it because um, it's a unique thing. And I don't know any other festival that does it. There might be, but um, I certainly mm. don't know. Um, and it's a lovely, lovely thing. So I'll be DJing down there Friday night. I'll be hanging out with you as well. And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Very I'll be fun. dancing on Friday night to your yeah. DJing. Do you know what time you're DJing at? 10 p.m. till 10 11. Cool. In the treehouse area. In the treehouse. And then I'm coming back on Saturday for a boat party, the Lumo boat party, which was got a bit insane when we after we announced it because uh, it went viral on TikTok with some Did random, it? yeah, with well, some <laughs> random graphics. Um, I think it, I don't know, I actually haven't looked at the, the final numbers, but it had at least 10,000 likes on this post from a, a TikTok influencer called I Come cool. Undone. And then, okay. but it had all this like stock footage of like DJs kind of in the Mediterranean on a boat. And you're like, lads, <laughs> it's going to be a nice boat, but it's not going to look like a catamaran. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's I'm it not going to be the, like... Uh the TikTok robot voice of like, there is a boat no, party in no, Dublin. No, no, it was summer. actually, it was actually okay. the, the real person's voice. Uh, but it kind of made it look like a Love Island kind of DJ boat party. And <laughs> we got, we got hundreds of followers as a result. And sure it was also that anyway, we've only hundred people on the boat and then we're doing Lumo. Uh, uh, in Tengu as regular but anyway it all got a bit mad because people like hundreds of people were looking for tickets and we're like that's like there's none and also it's not a kind of an event you can make money on because it's kind of breaking even just to do it Um, and so it'll be fun all the same hopefully we'll get a bit of nice next summer maybe you'll have like an entire fleet yeah an armada of (laughs) dancing the Lumo armada that'll that'll be next year that'll be 2023 Yeah. yeah I want my own boat. <laughs> you want okay, grand. We get you a speedboat to go beside us. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I could just sit by all the other boats and just say, "Life is short and futile." I just gotta bring the mood. If you want to support our nautical adventures, uh, whatever they may be, on the high seas or in the sou- in sounds, um, you could uh, uh, support us on Patreon.com forward slash nine nine. That is the plug. I'll I'll make sure to do that again before the end of the show. Um, but on this episode, we are going to be talking, well, I'm going to be talking mostly to Andrea about yeah, one of my favorite I'm albums. I'm this sitting is, back here. You're, you're, <laughs> uh, you and your cat um, can listen to me talk about Dig Your Own Hole from the Chemical Butters. The reason I wanted to talk about this is because I remember it being a very like seminal album for me personally because it felt like the first time when I Sorry, heard. Is this an episode of my favorite album? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the first time that I heard a a really like a proper dance album, probably like a, a, an accessible one. I think Dig Your Own Hole was kind of my way into a lot of dance music in when it came out. I remember I bought it. I think I was on holidays with my parents, uh, visiting my sister in America in Boston, and I bought it in a record shop there on CD. Um, So I remember getting and going, wow, there's some tracks here that I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this because I've never listened to stuff like this before. Other than Mm. the only dance music I'd probably listen to properly was like Scooter. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff at the time. Context for Dig Your Own Hole, it was released in 7th of April, 1997. Uh, obviously, Tom Rowlands and Ed Simons, they were just 26 and 27 at the time. This is their second album. Um, so, so to me, I mean, they were always, they were like 
cool and older and you know they were they were proper musicians in my head i was like what's going on here this is mad um so i guess for context like they had just released a an album in 1995 called exit planet dusk now i had heard a song or two of that from that on like you know those compilations you have like the best albums in the world ever and, and stuff like mm. that or now but it was the best album that was these indie compilation albums i remember like leave home the opening track from exoplanet dust being on that and then hearing like life is sweet and um, featuring uh the charlatans uh tim burgess at the time so let's play a bit of that actually just to give you some context for what they sounded like on their first album and this is the only track on the album i believe that had a vocal so i know two on the vocals uh charlatans and then bet horton who we'll discuss later was also on it so this is life is sweet So that was Life is Sweet from the album. And uh, uh, basically that was uh, a successful single for them. Um, and funny enough, Exoplanet Dusk, as the band, ended up being a very successful album. What it lacked in singles, um, it made up for in actually just having an impact. Um, at the time, you know, there was a lot of music happening uh, in this kind of vein, like a lot of music that was taking break beats and drums from like inspired by rap music and and taking uh, those kind of uh, snatches and and bits from songs from like funk and jazz and rock and old soul records and making big beats out of them. And big beat was actually the name of the genre that was going around at the time, mostly a UK phenomenon around labels like Skint, acts like Midfield General, uh, Propeller Heads and Fatboy Slim were all a part of this. They made these kind of big beat music. And I guess there was a while well, uh, Chemical Brothers always had that kind of acidy tone to their music. A lot of that uh, music did have that kind of big beat stuff. It wasn't like tr- traditional 4 4. It had like funky, um, it had a lot in common with rap music and hip hop music in that way because it, it used those like funky drums from uh, funk records as well. And I think most of the beat, big beat music that was around at the time was it was an interesting one because it was it was made by people who started in rock bands a lot of the time, so they had mm. this whole other uh, thing going on. So like Fatboy Slim, Norman Cook played bass in the House Spartans, uh, Bentley Rhythm Ace, who were around at the time, Richard Marsh was in Pop Would Eat Itself, uh, and Underworld's like early material at the time was much more like new wavy rock than any sort of dance music, but they obviously transition to that and you know you were seeing a lot of music that was being made that kind of felt like a little bit like the fall out of what happened with 88 in acid house and people discovering drugs and ecstasy in particular and we're kind of seeing six or seven years later kind of the fallout of that or what that meant creatively electronic music was having a having a moment Rip hop was maybe a little bit on the wane. 
and music was becoming less reliant on people playing real drums and it was using samples and synthesizers and drum machines and like 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 hip-hop stuff and it was kind of changing pop music in that way and there's a whole strand of music that had spilled out of that era and when they actually released uh exoplanet dust it anyway at first in the in the first year it was uh, released it sold 100,000 copies in uh, america which was interesting because i think you can probably you know attribute the likes of the video game wipeout to stuff like this where it had orbital and you know music like this on it like dread zone and stuff like that um this this actually made like the music uh dance music um kind of accessible for a lot of people like and it was very influential like Leffield, chemical brothers new order orbital the prodigy all that kind of music was on the shame and we're all on this wipeout uh, game soundtrack in 1995 on PlayStation. So that did quite well. And it is kind of a way of introducing that kind of music to people. And so when Exoplanet Dust was released, they, the chemical brothers actually, you know, were taken along on a wave of that. And you were seeing a bit of like a cultural paradigm shift in publications like MTV and uh, on TV uh, specifically, but publications like Spin and Rolling Stone would have to stay up and take notice. Like, Chemical Rose became a touring arena act at that time in 1995, including in the US. But that didn't stop the American journalists. Uh, there was one particular American journalist calling them the Beavis and Butthead of techno. <laughs> I think that was just because they were a duo more than anything else. But they were more like nerds really than anything else as this clip from MTV in 1997 shows. Live is just an extension of what we're doing downstairs, you know, the court. I mean, it's, I like it because we put all this effort into production of, of the records and how each sort of drum sounds. And, and in live, that's the only way that people can actually hear how they are, you know, how we put together things. Because, you know, people's hi-fis at home are not really going to reflect the sort of amount of work that goes into or the bass and stuff like that. So when you play it live, that's like how it's how it's meant to sound really loud and a good system. You know, when we play at things like that, we're just we are just taking our studio out and we're just doing what we're doing here, kind of in front of loads of people, and we have no way of kind of ingratiating ourselves toward an audience. We can't like go, we don't go like, come on, let's you know, I want to see those hands kind of thing. It's like we're doing what we're doing, and if you either kind of go with us or you go and see someone else. So they were very pragmatic in that way. They didn't, they weren't the David Guetta types in the early days. They weren't like, put your hands in the air and, you know, wave like you just don't care. They they didn't do that. They look like nerds. They look like sort of cool nerds um, as at the time. But uh, the album Exoplanet also would go on to, uh, overall was 750,000 copies in the US alone. So that's really interesting because like, that's quite a big up cultural impact. But then I guess for the context of the of dance music and electronic music in the 90s, like in the lead up to the release of Dig Your Own Hole in 1997, we had had Prodigy, Music for the Jilted Generation in 1994. We had Left Field, um, Leftism in 1995, Underworld, Second Toughs in the Infants in 1996, and the Train soundtrack and all that kind of stuff, DJ Shadow introducing introducing was released in 96 and then orbital insights the kind of breakthrough album from them was released in 1996 as well so when you arrive in april 1997 the release of this album uh well first of all november um november 1997 a very particular song was released and one that um really set the scene for what was going on here and that is um 
basically early on you heard Life is Sweet from The Chemical Brothers with Tim Burgess and at the time the guys were DJing in Heavenly and places like that and they had met Noel Gallagher from Oasis and he kind of went up to them and gone why am I die on one of your songs because he would do that and instead of uh He's like, oh, I see Tim Burgess is on in one of the songs, so why am I die on it? Uh, well, the reason is, um, I mean, it just wasn't happened, but the, they made it happen. So that was the first release of the actual um, album. And so I'm going to play a bit of this now. It is uh, from the Setting Sun. And I'm going to play a bit of a sample in it as well. So this released seven months before the album. Uh, the lyrics and the vocals were actually taken from an old Oasis demo when the band were called Supersonic, called uh, Coming On Strong. So here's how that sounds. So that's Setting Sun, that set the scene for the album to come seven months later and uh, set a bit of a template as well for uh, a lot of the band's material in uh, future releases. Obviously, Left Forever Be features on 1999 Surrender and that does a similar trick with Noel Gallagher of taking. And arguably, it was a bigger song, uh, takes that record and brings that kind of psychedelic 60s stuff into a big, uh, massive dance pop kind of arena um, with modern effects and big beat drums. So... Here's a here's a bit of that song. So that is, uh, yeah, that's from Surrender. That's uh, Left Forever B. Obviously, they repeated the kind of trick there on that. But back to Setting Sun, um, it it actually went to number one. But before that, uh, people had heard about it. They heard there was a collaboration with Chemical Brothers and and Noel Gallagher, and everyone was saying things like, tomorrow never knows. You just don't know if there's going to be a song at all or it's just a rumor. But what did actually happen was the song went to number one. And, uh, Adria, do you know, would you want to hazard a guess? You won't guess but you want to know what uh, song it beat 
um, what to get to number one. Number one. So I'm going to give you 1997, April 1997. I'm going to. It's an American band, and it's a song that references a film. Breakfast at Tiffany's. It is Breakfast at <laughs> Tiffany's. It? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you, you were kind to me with that clue there. Well, but, yeah. Um, I mean, you know. I mean, but there you go. I, yeah, I so. would have absolutely swore that Breakfast at Tiffany's was number one. Like yeah, went, well, went to number one. Maybe, it, maybe week. it did get there to number one actually. Yeah, but uh, it. And anyway, that week it was beat. It was beaten by uh, Set and Son. Um, so good. I think that's the just go. and right thing to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you now. The official no, charts love, say. I love Breakfast at Tiffany's, but you know. Breakfast at Tiffany's did go to number one. Yeah, and uh, it did. For, okay. For, yeah. For. And it's 18 weeks on the chart and spent one week at number one. So it must have been okay. the week afterwards, probably, in yeah. fairness. Um, <laughs> apparently, Chris Evans wasn't a fan of Setting Sun. He played this on his Radio 1 breakfast show and he took it off halfway through and said it was a racket. <laughs> Don't get me started on Chris Evans. <laughs> no, no. Well, we went back and watched TFI Friday recently, as we discussed. God, it is, it is very toxic. What a scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> what so, a scumbag. Sorry. So we approached the, the release in April of Dig Your Own Hole I haven't, with this song haven't come out. So we're talking, like, what happened in 1997? It was actually a great year for music. Um, the Prodigy, The Fat of the Land, was released uh, a couple of months after this. Uh, it was Oasis, Be Here Now was the time. So that's kind of, well, that's why, for context, that's when we're at. We're at, like, Oasis in their bloated period. Um, Spiritualized, Ladies and Gentlemen, We Are Floating in Space, Radiohead, OK Computer, Verve, Urban Hymns, Primal Scream, Vanishing Point, Mogwai, Young Team, Supergrass, In for the Money, Daft Punk, Homework, another album I could easily do uh, in this kind of vein, and then Blur, uh, self-titled album as well. But, you know, when it comes to Gambit Brothers, Digger on Hole really took them supernova in terms of their career and in terms of, uh, you know, hitting the number one and actually establishing themselves. It kind of transcended that big beat tag that was, you know, I remember like reading news or uh like uh, magazines like Vox and Select at the time and, and he, seeing all this kind of stuff, not really knowing what it was. And then hearing songs that were on kind of free CD compilations and you were like, oh yeah, I kind of get what this is. You can like mm. big beat. It sounds exactly like what it does sound like. But it would dig your own hole. Uh, Roland and Simon would actually, they would transcend that because they were bringing in hip hop elements, psychedelic uh, elements, acid house and house music in general. And, just that kind of sampling culture and bringing it and making it like sound absolutely massive. Um, so Jason Bentley, who was from Quango Records and a DJ in the US, said uh, they took a whole new song structure, the song structure of a house record, and made it a psychedelic rock record. And DJ Mag then says of uh, recently of their second album, it would perhaps Dig Your Own Hole was perhaps not the best electronic album of the 90s, but it was one of the most representative. And uh, so anyone who is looking for a primer on any sort of uh, dance and electronic music culture, uh, I would recommend picking up uh, Simon Reynolds' book, um, Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. He, at the time in this book, uh, described a Britpop with beats. And here's a bit from the book. Reared on the neo-psychedelic turmoil of My Bloody Valentine and that most riff-driven of rap groups, Public Enemy, then radicalized by their experience of Acid House during the college days in Manchester, the Chemical Brothers bring a punk-like attack to techno by accentuating the same blaring mid-frequencies supplied by distorted guitars. The Chemical second album, Digger on Hole, was even more raucous. In interviews, the duo testified to the influences of 60s garage punk and freak beat groups like Tintern Abbey and even Sam 
sampled psych, psych rockers Lothar and the Hand People on the awesomely monolithic mantra of it doesn't matter. And uh, in their Tim's Twitter listening party recently, they said this album is really shaped by touring Exoplanet Dust and going to lots of new exciting places, playing alive and wanting our music to sound incredible and have a big PA. We're also buying lots of weird records in Japan, the US, and, and uh, certainly there are a number of weird records that are sampled on this record as well. So, uh, and one of the things they always did, and this was where they started, if you go, if you, there's a compilation of the Counterculture stuff, um, one like uh, essentially a greatest hits, um, but one of the discs has electronic battle. Uh, so that's battle weapon. The basically a series of tracks that they would release uh, in advance of the album. Um, and they have done for a long, long time, basically testing the mountain clubs and it doesn't matter. And don't stop the rocks uh, were two songs that were released in June, 1996. So nearly a year before um, this was actually released. So we're going to turn now to the second single of, from the album. And uh it's Block Rock and Beats. It was a big, big song. It was a big, big video. Uh, they say Block Rock, Rock and Beats was made to play on a Saturday night when we were DJing in London. It was made for a very specific dance floor, so it was wild to see it go off and connect around the world. It was really influenced by our hip-hop love, and I think you can tell that. It has a, um, a fair bit of, uh, well, two two main like hip-hop samples. So I'm going to run you through those now, and you can hear. First of all, we're going to hear The Crusaders, The Well's Gone Dry from 1974. And then Sample, of course, Scooby D. Gucci again from 1989. This next part is definitely on you, and if you're ready, we're about ready to rock steady. We're about ready to rock steady. The last sample there was Africa Islam, the Zulu Beats radio show uh, from 1983. Uh, you may know that reference from uh, a Beastie Boys track as well. Um, I like uh, Root Down, the Harlem Beat rappers on the Zulu Beats show. Um, so that's the kind of samples there from that track. Although there is a dispute about, like, and I'm actually surprised because I remember the first time I heard, I heard this other song uh, a number of years ago. And I, I looked it up there. And it's from uh, Skidoo Coop, and it's called 23. And a lot of people know the similarities between this bass line on Block Rocket Beats and Skidoo's 23, uh, 20, 23 Skidoo's Coop. Although neither artists have openly recognized the association, it may have, it's been speculated that since both were signed to EMI, a, royalty, a royalties deal may have been agreed upon upon closed doors. And this kind of does sound like maybe that first one, the Crusaders, the Wells uh, Gone Dry track with, with this on top of it. So I'll play this now. Mm-hmm. 
You don't look convinced, Andrea, there. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. That face is pretty recognizable. Yeah, I think so. So mm. while it's not officially uh, credited as a sample, it certainly sounds like a very, very close to it, even more really so does, than the first yeah. one, really. Yeah. So I found yeah, that sure. that source was from who sampled as well, who said, uh, who uh, made me feel like I wasn't uh, alone in the world there for a minute um, <laughs> <laughs> on that track. But, you know, uh, the title track, Digger on Hole, was also uh, was supposed to be a remix of a Bjork song, um, uh, actually a hyper ballad from Bjork, but it was scrapped. Uh, and they said uh, she was very much not into it. And I think her words were, I will not have a slap bass on my record, <laughs> which is fair enough. Surprising, So Stereo Gums Tom Brehan, uh, who wrote about Digger on Hole when it turned 20 about five years ago, said, Digger on Hole is a masterpiece of wading through other people's records, the same way that DJ Shadow's Introducing had been a few months earlier. The difference, of course, was that Introducing was a meditative internal odyssey and the Chemical Brothers made sure everything exploded outward. And I think that's really fair, and it's certainly fair on the next track, the uh, which is Electrobank, which was... You may remember the video at the time, directed by Spike Jones, one of his big videos, and features Sofia Coppola doing some gymnastics and uh, had a whole uh, like narrative, uh, which you know you didn't really get at the time, you know, nineteen ninety seven in music videos, and I think the auteurs of music videos at around that time were were coming through and really making a difference, and you're seeing a lot of. Um, Spike Jones in particular did a lot of that kind of stuff at that time and really interesting music videos. Um, so Electrobank, they say this always felt like a monster while making it spirals out of hand, messy and fast and noisy. We were trying to write a riff for it and being bored by the normal sounds we were getting. Uh, the intro features the legendary DJ Cool Herc on the mic. Uh, not a sample, but one that they recorded uh, because when they asked him to open up for them at Irving Plaza in NYC in 1996, um, and the end section that actually does this track actually does have a a veteran session drummer called Simon Phillips who plays drums on it as well as some of the samples that are on it. Uh, Phillips worked as a session drummer for Jeff Beck and um, Gary Moore, Nick Kershaw, Mike Oldfield, Tears for Fears, Ten CC, and the Who. Um, so he is on this as well. And then there's an end section, which is inspired by a psych record by Pierre Henry, which is very much like the avant-garde, like the blown out kind of slow kind of trippy bit. Um, let's play a bit here. Then this is, uh, you'll hear some of the samples now from, uh, on Electrobike. That's cool. Herc there. Fuck 
fucking mad lions. Who is this doing this emphatic type of disco alphabet of funkadelic fucking emphasis from the funk abyss? Blowing up the spot with the pump rum, shaking pistol grip, losing niggas in the block. is Odetta's hit or miss. And how it's used. So that's how uh, the Chemical Brothers would do a lot of their, um, you know, sampling, EQ'd and filtered and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of DJs would be familiar with that kind of um, technique, um, but very simple. And that other one there was Keith Murray, uh, This That Shit is the name of that track, um, which you hear there are very, very iconic um, samples now at this point and uh, ones that are, were used quite a lot. From the rest of the album, I think, you know, um, there are there is a season, and I think a lot of Chemical Brothers albums go like this. There is like a a passage in the middle where it kind of meanders into these kind of studio jams, and they're always really interesting. and And for me, uh, I think one of these songs, um, it doesn't matter, was definitely fairly challenging for me at the time because I wasn't listening to stuff like this, and it's fairly. It's like four four dance music was not something I was really listening to, and I really didn't have any. You know, I didn't have any experience of it. I wasn't going to clubs. I wasn't old enough for that. But um, uh, here's It Doesn't Matter. So the run of tracks there from It Doesn't Matter to Don't Stop the Rock, Get Up On It Like This and Lost in the K-Hole, which are very much like they do feel like those kind of studio jams. And I think what's there is if you go and listen to the 25th anniversary uh, version of the album, which is out now, there's a second disc on it and there's alternative versions of a lot of these songs. And I think they're really interesting because you can kind of hear how they would work because a lot of electronic producers would sit in front of a laptop and, you know, work off the grid. Um, it doesn't sound like they're doing that in this way. They're using like analog equipment. They're using a desk. They're pushing faders up and down. They're changing things. They're putting delay on it. And it just makes for a whole different uh, vibe. And I think that really feeds into how they perform live as well. Um, they would change things a lot and have the ability to, you know, not just rely on whatever is on the computer. Um, so I think it's it's something that, you know, while it is expensive and it is something that, you know, I do, I've definitely seen, saw Leftfield recently, or sorry, saw Underworld recently at All Together Now and seen um, Carl Hyde on stage which, uh, with just, and Rick Smith, with just a big massive laptop or like a big massive computer, like a, a desktop computer. And it's like, oh yeah, because they're running so many things off that desk into the desk so it just made sense that that's what they do probably don't get a lot of that anyway but on some of those tracks there um 
uh, get up on it like this actually has a, a bass player called Seg Jennings who's playing on it. The, uh, of Lost in the K-Hole, they said it had been subsequently told that a K-Hole doesn't sound like this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we were imagining a cavernous du- duvet den. So yeah, I get it. Because if you hear this, you, this is uh, this is not something that you'd uh, you'd expect. So from there, we're, we're talking, that's track nine. Um, there are two big, big songs left. And uh, really, these songs indicate, you know, really cement this album as a big, big release. The release uh, as that was quite influential and, you know, did a lot for their reputation. And also just like, and how it kind of calls back to psychedelic music. Like I said, um, setting sun had that kind of vibe to it, but more specifically, these two tracks here, Beth Orton is on where do I begin? And, uh, is, I remember hearing this in when it came out and just being like, wow, it's wonderful. I didn't know you, uh, you know, a dance act could had like, you were able to do this, just like get a singer in to make this kind of lovely, indie folktronica song that like really soars and takes off um, and it's something they had uh, collaborated with Beth Orton on the first album on a song called Alive Alone but this is probably their best work with her um, and I think uh, yeah it's worthless <laughs> So yeah, where do I begin? Has that kind of discombobulating, like bleary-eyed, I don't know what's happening uh, sentiment to it, but also it does have that explosion at the end into these big drums, and it's something that um, this final song on the album would really uh, underscore and do quite a lot. It is the song that they would finish and still do finish a lot of their live sets with. Is the a song called "The Private Psychedelic Reel." Uh, the title is an apparent uh, reference to a tape reel that the Beatles allegedly had uh, for their more psychedelic moments, which they kept for private usage. Uh, um, it is the song to finish the album. Yeah. So they said, this is the song to finish the album. Nowhere to go after this. This took a long time to do. There were lots of different versions. So Mercury Rev's Jonathan Donahue plays on it um, somewhere, somehow. Um, they had seen Mercury Rev around that time and really liked what they did at the end of their gigs, which was like kind of this big jam thing. And I guess like pre-Deserter songs, their songs came out in 1998. And Mercury Rev were quite a curio at that time in 1997. They were like, they had they had weird albums. I don't know if you've ever gone back to their early, early stuff, but they were fairly avant-garde and fairly weird and, um, you know, experimental as well. 
So they saw Jonathan Donoghue and uh, asked him to play on it. And uh, he brought in the uh, Mercury Red member, Mark Marinoff, to play the clarinet solo. It's all around this um, uh, long, long track. I think this is uh, like, this probably clocks in about like 11 minutes or so, is it? I think. Anyway, alive, it's definitely a lot longer. Uh, in The Quietest, uh, an interview in The Quietest, um, Jonathan Donoghue told uh, The Quietest that uh, somewhere in 96 or 97, I can't remember. Uh, Nothing was happening. Everything was at a complete standstill. We'd barely even begin writing deserted songs. I was thinking, well, okay, I've got to go out there and pump gas for the rest of my life. Then out of the blue, I got a call from Tom and Ed from the Capitalers who said, would you like to play on a song which was the private psychedelic reel? I almost cried because I couldn't believe someone remembered me in the band to the point that they'd actually call up and say, we want to work with you. They sent me the basic tracks and I think we were hoping for me to do one or two things and then send it back. I probably recorded 47,000 tracks. I was so exuberant, I just couldn't believe it. I remember it was a great sun through the clouds moment in a long period of dark and darkness. It did warm me up from the chill, and I thank them to this day. So that's so sweet. very much, yeah. It's just a, a nice thing, a nice uh, thing that happened. They uh, brought in, them in, and then subsequently, the band had a real um, taking off in terms of popularity. They changed mm. their sound as well, and I think there's something very special about this song. It's it it has that psychedelic 60s thing you know it's kind of like it's often referenced that the drums sound like tomorrow never knows from the beatles which is actually something i'll play in a minute because they well actually i'll play here because because in 1996 uh, they were doing this kind of thing live in their set they were looping uh, the drums from Tomorrow Never Knows and interpolating it into one of their tracks and um, so here's a recording from June 22nd uh, 1996 from a rave called Organic 96 in Southern California on the bill was Chemical Brothers Loop Guru Meat Beat Manifesto Orbital and The Orb and this was actually broadcast on CROQ on Jason Bentley's show who I mentioned at the start um, and the guy that posted this on bratproductions.com says, when the Chemical Brothers played this live, I was on the rail staring at the black and white flashing image of John Lennon from Yellow Submarine as the bass smacked me around. And here's how that starts. So Private Psychedelic Reel was the final uh, single from the album, which was released uh, in December 1997. So the singles were Setting Sun uh, in September 96, Block Rock and Beats, March 97, Electro Bank, September 97, and the Private Psychedelic Reel, 1st of December 1997. So yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's it's such a, it's a nine and a half minute song, basically. It has... I think those drums in particular, you can see that that's the reference point for this track. Um, I'll play two sections of this track just to give you a flavor because you obviously can't do it all because it's so long, but a quiet a bit and a loud bit. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, that is the spirit of psychedelia in 1997, uh, updated for for the time, and I think it still sounds great, and it's still something that the Gamblers play live at the end of their sets. They would team up with Jonathan Donahue again in 1999 on Surrender, the final song on that song, uh, album called Dream On, uh, and that was more of an acoustic-assistive meditative uh, track itself. But uh, yeah, it really is one of those songs that has really lasted the career, and, and I think it still sounds super fresh. And, you know, that's because the way that they do it, um, it's hard to really put it into words but it has that kind of all the rushing kind of studio sounds and it is ov- obviously often the encore and still is even to this day camera Rose was supposed to play here in the summer um just before glastonbury before their uh crew got covid apparently and uh mm. and one of them got covid so they couldn't do it and then they were supposed to dj at glastonbury and then that couldn't happen but i think like Brothers, when i think of the camera what i think of is irish festivals late 90s early 2000s they toured a lot in the u.s and europe 96 97 i'm pretty sure like i missed they played in the point in 96 i think and maybe then uh 97 i don't think i saw them they played witness in 2002 marley park 2005 i think i saw them first at oxygen 2004 uh maybe i saw them in the point as well i want to say in 2005 maybe Anyway, now obviously they uh, they have these huge sets that there's this huge like visual led show, which I haven't I've only seen very briefly at Longitude the last time they played that because I was DJing at the time and I kind of left. I remember it was around the time of um, that big Q-Tip song that they had. What's the name of that one? Uh, with Go. I think it was 2015. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of that's the album that had um, Saint Vincent and people like that on it. I guess that's the thing they some of their albums that came afterwards i loved uh, surrender as an album um but they would often you know take kind of guests of the day or vocalists of the day and bring them in and sometimes it worked really well sometimes it didn't uh, like surrender i think bernard summers on out of control and uh, obviously no got her hope sandoval's on asleep from day which is a great track um and then jonathan dunhu's again as of course um, like the the Banner Summer stuff doesn't work quite as well, and then we had uh, Come with Us, which had less the uh, guests on it. Richard Ashcroft was one of the guests on the final track. Beth Orton featured on the state we're in, and then kind of two thousand five, uh, pushed the button, did quite well. Um, we had Tim Burgess coming back, uh, Kelly from Block Party. Um, yeah, that did quite well. Galvanize obviously featuring Q Tip and. Um, so yeah, they did. They've always, I think, on every one of their albums, they've always had something that was interesting. Even back up to 2019's um, "No Geography," um, like Eve, uh, "No Geography." They got to keep on is a great track on that, and then um, we've got to try. So there's always something to recommend. I think they're still 
making good music here or there and even if it doesn't always work to the same level like swoon was 2010 so there's always something that they've released but i think their visuals and and how it works live is really their big big package they were probably they are the first probably like in terms of worldwide they're probably the most obvious like long-standing dance act who can headline any festival and who could play anywhere because they have that setup, they have these huge visual screens, they can play wherever, they can fit on a Coachella lineup, they can fit on a mm-hmm. cool, uh, cooler, more smaller festival, whatever it is, Electric Picnic, they've done that a number of times. So, um, yeah. So there is, look, there's loads saying, do you know that the Chemical Brothers had six UK uh, number ones in their albums, album charts? So, so they're like, I mean, their albums are big. Mm-hmm. They've been big influences. I remember seeing them live at auction and that time and being like, mm-hmm. whoa, this is like something I've never seen before. And I think yeah. I learned a lot from that because it was, I guess because it's not like a small club thing where most dance music is, it's, it's, it's more like this big spectacle but it still has that like really interesting music and digging on hole is a great example of that. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to spend some time giving it, uh, giving it its flowers and, and uh, uh, before we, uh, you know, and it's medals and it's, you know, it's easy. And yeah. Um, and, uh, I'll, you know. I'll, I'll shout out their live in Japan uh, DVD or live thing, um, which my brother sat me down and made me watch many years ago <laughs> now. Um um because he you you and him are quite similar now actually you you are a similar age and both djs both big kind of dance music house music fans um and very similar taste in music so he he sat me down once when i was visiting him was like watching this chemical brothers thing i was like right and i watched it and i was completely blown away by it um so yeah i i recommend that to people who I haven't got to see them live like myself, but are interested in like what, what it is they do in terms of that spectacle, yeah. because even, you know, how it's shot and everything is so creative and um, interesting to look at, uh, very kind of inclusive to the home audience. You don't really feel like you're being left out of something, uh, yeah. which is very cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they've had some huge tracks over time, you know, Star Guitar, uh, tracks like that you know there's there's always something there that they look um, out of control is a mainstay hey boy, on hey my girl. running playlist oh yeah it's, it's gotten me yeah. through a lot it's got me up many i mean hills. there's lots there <laughs> there's lots there but look i just wanted to yeah. spend some time with it um sit with it and uh share that with you guys uh about the album and just uh i feel that it, it did have i still remember the feeling of getting that cd in boston that time and being like whoa this is mm. something different, you know, and I think that's what music uh, discovery and exploration is all about, like feeling, feeling like even feeling a bit challenged by something as well. You know, um, mm. I've been listening to uh, Panda Bear and Sonic Boom's new album um, this week and uh, just kind of reminded me of, you know, person pitch and listening to those kind of uh you know, music that references the past in a really interesting way. And I think the Kempfros have always done that as well. And, you know, taking the spirit of hip hop and, and acid house and, and psychedelic rock and all that stuff and, and putting it in a big, big beat blender and uh, presenting it to the world. So, so yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to do that. So big beats are the best. Big beats. Um, <laughs> so patreon.com forward slash nine or nine if you want to support the show and um, we always do uh, extra playlists and uh podcasts and uh, uh you know discord little bits the main thing is the discord at the moment yeah uh to access the nine or nine discord uh 
you have to sign up to the Patreon. And in order to do that, patreon.com forward slash nine nine. But it is great. It's a great, uh, the community is great. And uh, I've said it many times before, but it is, uh, it's a wonderful thing to have. And uh, and in these times when it's hard to actually have a community, uh, especially online, without it turning toxic, it's nice to have a space where you know that, you know, like-minded individuals are existing (laughs) with you and having a chat with you. I think I'm into, into maybe my second month now away from twitter and instagram oh yeah never asked yeah yeah you're not missing it obviously it's around that sorry you're not missing it obviously no no (laughs) i do i have to log in every 30 days or else they'll permanently delete your account and i may well need the account at some stage um right i have logged in once or twice to to keep the account deactivated and not permanently deleted and logging in and then just looking at the timeline and being like oh god oh my god no 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 and then just getting the hell out of there again um it's quite nice i definitely don't miss instagram which is weird like okay and i i kind of like instagram so i don't know maybe i'll go back on that one i think my relationship with that is kind of fine but twitter i'm like no big old boundary thank you sir yeah fair Um, enough fair enough um if, if you can have a healthy relationship with social media, uh, I mean, I think it's hard for me to do it because like, it's work and it feels like yeah. work a lot of the time. Yeah, the, the work thing is tough because spot. like I've been on a couple of podcasts recently and they've been like, oh, where can we find you? And I'm like, nowhere. <laughs> I'm not anywhere right now. <laughs> you can listen to my podcasts, but other than that, don't find me. Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't observe me. <laughs> um, but the Nile and I Discord, that's where I'm kind of. Out a voice in the ether. That's what you're. Yeah, you can find her. Yeah, yeah. When exactly, you want to hear yeah. from Andrea, that's when you will hear from Andrea. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. When you when you need me most, you'll hear me on the wind telling you <laughs> some kind of stupid observation about something or other. But yeah, uh, or or nice. on Discord. Um, All right. Well, that's it from us this week. Uh, yeah. Thanks for indulging me, and hope you enjoyed that. I did and, enjoy uh, that. Thank you. Very good. Lovely. Lovely. We're right. off to a festival. And We're we'll, off to a festival. we'll back on it next week, maybe. 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 Bye. Yeah. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.